Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 21, A Few Days on Land. It was exciting to be setting foot on land again. Ned felt the ground with his foot as if he were taking formal possession of it. Two months had passed since we had become, to quote Captain Nemo, passengers on board the Nautilus, but in reality prisoners of her captain. A few minutes later we were about a gunshot away from the shore. The soil was almost entirely madreporal, but some dried-up beds of streams strewn with granite debris showed that the island was of primordial formation. The horizon was hidden behind a curtain of magnificent forest. Gigantic trees, sometimes as much as two hundred feet high, were joined to each other by garlands of trumpet vines, which formed natural hammocks that a light breeze could rock to and fro. There were mimosas, rubber trees, casarinas, teaks, hibiscus, padanas, and palm trees, mingling in great profusion, and in the shadow of their great vault at the foot of their huge trunks grew orchids, leguminous plants, and ferns. The Canadian, however, did not notice all these magnificent examples of Papuan flora, rejecting the pleasant in favor of the useful. Soon he spied a coconut palm, knocked down some of its fruit, and opened them, and we drank the milk and ate the meat with a relish that was a protest against the regular fare on board the Nautilus. Excellent, Ned Land said. Exquisite, answered Conseil. Do you suppose, asked the Canadian, your Captain Nemo would object to our bringing a load of coconuts on board? I do not think so, I replied, but he will not want to taste any. So much the worst for him, said Kinsey. And so much the better for us, retorted Ned Land. There will be more for us to eat. I should just like to say one thing, Master Land, I said to the harpooner, as he was getting ready to ravage another coconut palm. The coconut is a good thing, but before filling the boat with them, don't you think it would be better to find out whether this island produces something else equally useful? Fresh vegetables, for instance, would be well received on board the Nautilus. Monsieur is right, replied Conseil, and I propose that we reserve three spaces on our boat, one for fruit, one for vegetables, and the third for venison, of which I haven't yet seen the slightest sign. You must not give up hope, Conseil, replied the Canadian. So let us move on, I interjected, and keep our eyes open. Although the island appears to be uninhabited, it may well harbor some natives who are less fussy than we are about the nature of the game. Ha, ha, said Ned Land, moving his jaws up and down very significantly. Ned, how can you? exclaimed Conseil. Yes, replied the Canadian. I am beginning to understand the charms of cannibalism. What are you saying, Ned? cried Conseil. You, a cannibal? I won't feel safe sharing my cabin with you if you talk like that. Do you think I want to wake up some morning and find myself half devoured? Friend Conseil, I'm very fond of you, but not enough to want to eat you, unless I have to. I'm not sure I trust you, replied Conseil. Come on, let's start hunting. We've simply got to shoot some game to satisfy this cannibal, or else one of those mornings Monsieur will find only a few bits of his servant left over to wait on him. While this banter was going on, we were passing beneath the somber arches of the jungle. For two hours we wandered about in all directions. We were fortunate in our search for edible vegetables, for one of the most useful plants of the tropics provided us with a valuable food that had been lacking on board the ship. This was the breadfruit tree, very plentiful on the island of Guburor, and the type I noticed was the seedless one, known to the Malays as Rima. 
This tree was different from the others since it had a tall, straight trunk about 40 feet high. Its top was gracefully rounded and made up of large, multi-lobed leaves, which made it easily identifiable to a naturalist as the Articarpus successfully grown in the Masserine Islands in the Indian Ocean. Great globe-shaped fruits hung down from the heavy foliage. They measured about four inches across and were marked on their outside rind with hexagonal furrows. This useful vegetable has been a blessing in areas lacking wheat, for without having to be cultivated or cared for, it produces fruit for eight months of the year. Ned Land was well acquainted with this fruit, having already eaten it on numerous voyages, and he knew how to prepare the edible part. Moreover, the sight of it aroused in him an irrepressible desire. Professor, he said to me, I'll die if I don't have some of that breadfruit. Then by all means have some, Ned. Have as much as you want. We are here to gain experience, so let us gain it. It won't take long, replied the Canadian, and with the aid of a magnifying glass, he lit a fire of dead wood, which was soon crackling merrily. When he was doing this, Conseil and I were selecting the best fruit of the Articarpus. Some of them had not yet reached a sufficient degree of ripeness, and their thick rind concealed a white pulp that had not yet become fibrous. On the other hand, there were a great many others that were yellowish and glutinous in consistency, just waiting to be picked. This fruit had no kernel. Conseil brought a dozen of them to Ned Land, who placed them, cut into thick slices, on the charcoal fire, repeating as he did so, "'You'll see how good this bread is, monsieur!' "'Especially when one has had to go without for so long,' said Conseil. "'It's more than just bread,' added the Canadian. "'It's a delicate pastry. Haven't you ever had any, sir?' "'No, Ned.' "'Well, get ready to have something really tasty. "'If you don't come back for more, I'm no longer the king of harpooners.' After a few minutes, the part of the fruit nearest the flames was completely charred. Inside, there was a sort of white paste, like soft bread crumbs, whose taste was reminiscent of artichoke. I found the bread excellent and ate it with great gusto. Unfortunately, I said, this stuff cannot be kept, and there doesn't seem to be much point in collecting a supply to take back to the ship. What do you mean? cried Ned Land. You're talking like a naturalist. But I'm going to act like a baker, Conseil. Go and collect some of this fruit, and we'll pick them up on the way back. How do you prepare them? I asked the Canadian. By making a fermented paste with the pulp that will keep indefinitely and not go bad. When I want to have some, I'll have it cooked by the galley, and you'll see it'll taste good even if it is a bit acid. So this kind of bread doesn't need anything to go with it, Ned? Oh, yes it does, Professor, replied the Canadian. You need some fruit, or at any rate, some vegetables. So let us look for fruit and vegetables. When we had finished collecting the breadfruit, we set out to complete our onshore provisions. Our search was not in vain, for by midday we had collected an ample supply of bananas. This delicious product of torrid zones ripens throughout the year, and the Malays, who called them Pasang, eat them without cooking them. Together with these bananas we picked some enormous jackfruit, which have a very pronounced taste, some juicy mangoes, and some incredibly big pineapples. Our harvesting took up quite a lot of time. But we didn't mind. Kinsei kept watching Ned. The harpooner walked ahead through the jungle, pausing now and again to pick with an expert hand the excellent fruits needed to complete his supplies. Well, asked Kinsei, do we need anything else now, Ned? Hum, was all the Canadian said. What? Aren't you satisfied? All these vegetables don't make a meal, replied Ned. They're only the trimmings or the dessert. What about the soup and the roast? Come to think of it, you are right, I said. Ned promised us some cutlets, but I do not think we will get them. Monsieur, said the Canadian, the hunt isn't over yet. It hasn't even begun. Patience, my friends. We will certainly come across some flesh or fowl here or elsewhere. If it isn't today, it will be tomorrow, added Conseil. 
We shouldn't go too far, though. I suggest we return to the boat. What? Already? cried Ned. We will have to get back before nightfall, I said. What time is it? asked the Canadian. It must be at least two o'clock, replied Conseil. How time flies on dry land, exclaimed Ned Land with a sigh of regret. Let's go back, replied Conseil. We walked back through the forest, completing our harvest by raiding the cabbage palms, which had to be picked by climbing trees, some small beans, which I recognized as the abru of the Malays, and some yams of superior quality. When we reached the boat, we were weighted down with provisions. Even so, Ned Land found we hadn't enough. Luck was with him, for just as we were about to climb in, he noticed some trees twenty-five or thirty feet high belonging to the palm family. These trees, which are as valuable as the breadfruit, are justly considered one of the most useful in the Malay archipelago. They were sago palms, plants that grow wild and, like blackberry bushes, multiply by means of their sprouts and berries. Ned Land certainly knew how to work with trees. Taking his axe and wielding with great vigor, he soon felled two or three sago palms, whose maturity could be determined by the white dust of their leaves. More as a naturalist than a hungry man, I watched to mark. He began by stripping a piece of bark off each trunk, this bark was about an inch thick and was covered with a network of long fibers which formed inextricable knots held together with a sort of glutinous flour. This flour was the sago, an edible substance used mainly for food by the Malayans. For the time being, Ned was content to cut the trunks into chunks as though he were collecting firewood. Later on, he would extract the flour and sift it through a piece of cloth to separate it from its fibrous ligaments before drying it in the sun and getting it hardened into little balls. At last, at five o'clock in the evening, loaded with all our treasures, we left the island, half an hour later reaching the Nautilus. No one came out to receive us. The enormous steel cylinder seemed deserted. So, after taking the provisions on board, I went to my room. My supper was ready, and after supper I went to bed. The next day, the 6th of January, there was no new development on board. Not a sound inside the ship. No sign of life. The dinghy had remained inside the Nautilus just where we had left it. We decided to return to the island of Gubora. Ned Land hoped to have better luck than the day before and wanted to hunt in another part of the forest. At sunrise, we were already on our way. The boat sailed easily with the waves that carried us straight toward the shore and reached the island in a few minutes. We disembarked and decided that the best plan was to rely on Ned Land's instinct. We followed the Canadian, whose long legs threatened to outdistance us. Ned went westward along the shore, then, fording some streams, came to the plateau, which was fringed with magnificent forests. There were some kingfishers flitting along the water's edge, but we couldn't get near them. Their caution proved to me that these birds knew what to do when dealing with bipeds like us, and I realized that if the island were not inhabited, it was at least frequented by human beings. After crossing a fairly wide expanse of grassland, we came to the edge of a little forest animated with the song and flutter of numerous birds. Only birds here, said Kinsei. Yes, but some are good to eat, replied the harpooner. Not at all, Ned, replied Kinsei. I see only parrots here. Kinsei, said Ned seriously, the parrot is a pheasant to those who have nothing better to eat. And let me add, I interposed, that properly prepared, it is by no means to be despised. Indeed, beneath the dense foliage of this wood, a world of parrots flitted from branch to branch, just waiting for a better education to learn how to speak a human language. At that time, however, they kept chattering with multicolored parakeets and solemn-looking cockatoos, who seemed to be meditating on some philosophical problems, while bright red lorries flashed to and fro like streaks of bunting blown in the wind amid the noisy flights of Kaloos and Papuans of the finest shades of blue. 
All in all, they formed a delightful collection of birds, though none too edible. One bird, however, was missing in this collection, a bird peculiar to this part of the world and never seen outside of the Aru and Papuan Islands. But I was destined to admire it before long. Having passed through a fairly dense thicket, we came on a plain covered with bushes. It was then that I saw, rising in the sky, some magnificent birds whose long feathers compelled them to fly through the wind, their undulating flight, the grace with which they swept through the air, and the beauty of their colors were truly enchanting on their eyes. I had no difficulty in recognizing them. "'Birds, paradise!' I cried. "'Of the Order of Sparrow, section of Clistamores,' added Conseil. "'And belonging to the Partridge family?' suggested Ned Land. "'I do not think so, Master Land. However, I am counting on your skills to capture one of these charming products of tropical nature.' I'll do my best, Professor, although I'm more accustomed to handling a harpoon than a gun. The Malays, who sell many of these birds to the Chinese, use various means to catch them, none of which we could use. Sometimes they use snares placed at the tops of tall trees where birds of paradise like to perch. Sometimes they catch them with a strong glue that renders them incapable of movement. They even go so far as to poison the waters where the birds are in the habit of drinking. All we could do was to shoot them on the wing, which meant that we had a very slim chance of hitting them. Indeed, we wasted a lot of ammunition. At about eleven o'clock in the morning we had crossed the first ridge of mountains in the center of the island without shooting anything. We were tantalized by hunger. The hunters had decided to rely for their food on the proceeds of the hunt, and had made an error in so doing. Fortunately, however, Conseil, much to his own surprise, brought down two birds with one stone, and provided lunch. He shot both a white pigeon and a ring dove, which were plucked, hung on a spit, and roasted over a glowing wood fire. While these delectable creatures were cooking, Ned repaired the breadfruit. The two birds were then devoured to the bone, declared excellent nutmeg with which they stuff themselves flavors their meat and makes it delicious as good as if they had been stuffed with truffles remarked conseil well ned what more do you want i asked the canadian some four-footed game monsieur aranax replied ned land those birds were no more than an appetizer something for the mouth to practice on i will not be happy until i've killed an animal that has some good chops nor will i ned until i have caught a bird of paradise "'Well, let's get on the hunt,' said Conseil. "'But let's work back toward the sea. "'We've gotten to the first mountain slopes, "'and I think it would be best to return to the forest.' "'Since this seemed to be a sensible piece of advice, "'we followed it. "'After walking for an hour, "'we came to a veritable forest of sago palms. "'Now and again some harmless snake darted away "'from under our feet. "'The birds of paradise fled as we approached, "'and I was giving up all hope of getting one "'when Conseil, who was walking in front, "'suddenly bent down with a cry of triumph, "'came to me with a magnificent bird of paradise. "'Bravo, Conseil!' I exclaimed. "'Monsieur is very kind,' replied Conseil. "'Not at all, my lad. "'That was a masterstroke, "'to actually catch one of these birds alive, "'catch it with your own hands?' "'If Monsieur will examine it with care, "'he will see that it wasn't such a difficult feat. "'Why, Conseil?' This bird is as drunk as a lord. Drunk? Yes, monsieur. Drunk from all the nutmeg it was eating under the tree where I found it. Look, Ned, take a look at the disastrous effects of intemperance. Hell, retorted the Canadian, considering all the gin I've drunk in the last two months, you can't throw intemperance in my teeth. In the meantime, I examined the strange bird. Conseil was right. The bird of paradise, inebriated by the heady nutmeg juice, was reduced to impotence. It couldn't fly. It could scarcely walk. I was a little concerned about that. 
I decided to let it sleep it off. The bird belonged to the most beautiful of the eight species found in Papua and the neighboring islands. He was a great emerald, one of the rarest. He was about a foot long. His head was fairly small, and his little eyes were situated near the opening of the beak. But what a marvelous combination of colors he was! A yellow beak, brown feet and claws, nut-colored wings with purple tips, a pale yellow head and neck, an emerald throat, and a chestnut-colored breast and stomach. Two cornet-shaped downy feathers rose above his tail, which consisted mainly of very fine, long, light feathers. This plumage added to and completed the beauty of this marvelous bird, which the natives have poetically named the sunbird. How I wished I could take superb specimen back to Paris as a gift to the Jardin de Plans, which hasn't a single live specimen. Are they very rare? asked the Canadian, speaking as a hunter who rarely considers game from an aesthetic point of view. Very rare, my friend, and especially difficult to catch alive. Even when they are dead, they still bring a big price on the market. The natives often make fake ones, just as pearls and diamonds are faked. What? cried Conseil. They fake these birds of paradise? Yes, Conseil. Does Monsieur know how they do it? I do. During the monsoon season, the birds of paradise lose the magnificent feathers around their tails, known to naturalists as the sublary feathers. These feathers are collected by fakers, who are very skilled in the art of faking birds, using, for example, a partridge killed for that purpose. They dye the suture, varnish the bird, and send the product of their skill to European museums and collectors. Well, said Ned Land, if they don't have the bird itself, they have its feathers, and unless they eat it, I don't see much harm in that. If my desire were satisfied possession of a bird of paradise, the desires of the Canadian hunter were still far from quenched. Fortunately, at about two o'clock, Ned Land shot a magnificent wild pig of the kind that natives called Bari Utang. This animal was just what we needed to satisfy our hunger for quadruped meat, and we were happy to have it. Ned Land was very proud of his shot. Hit by an electric bullet, the pig had fallen stone dead. The Canadian stripped and drew the animal cleanly and cut half a dozen chops for our evening grill. We then resumed a hunt that was to be memorable for further exploits by Ned and Conseil. Our two friends were beating the bushes when they suddenly flushed out a number of kangaroos, which made off in leaps and bounds on their springy legs. But the animals were not quick enough for our electric bullets, and they were stopped in their tracks. "'Well, Monsieur le Professeur,' exclaimed Ned Land, intoxicated by the excitement of the chase, "'what excellent game! Just the thing for a stew! What a wonderful supply for the Nautilus, too! Three! We got five of them! We'll eat all that meat ourselves, and those imbeciles on the crew will not have a single bite!' I really believe the Canadian, carried away by his enthusiasm, would have slaughtered every one of those animals if he had not been talking so much. Instead, he had to be satisfied with a mere dozen of those marsupials which, said Conseil, constitute the first order of aplacental mammals. These particular specimens were of a smaller type, a sort of rabbit kangaroo that lives inside tree trunks and whose speed is extraordinary. They are not very big, but their flesh is of an excellent quality. We were quite pleased with the results of our hunt. The jubilant Ned proposed that we return the next day to this enchanted island, which he wanted to depopulate of all edible quadrupeds but he did not know that circumstances would ordain otherwise. At six o'clock in the evening, we were back on the beach. Our dinghy was in its usual place. The Nautilus emerged above the water, looking like a long reef some two miles from shore. Without delay, Ned Land set to work preparing dinner. He was very knowledgeable about that, that type of cooking. Very soon, the bari utang chops grilled over the embers filled the surrounding air with a delightful, fragrant odor. Was I beginning to be carried away by the enthusiasm of this Canadian? Was I actually intoxicated at the sight of a piece of fresh grilled pork? 
May I be forgiven, just as I forgave Master Land, and for the same motives? The dinner, it must be admitted, was excellent. The magnificent menu included two ring doves, sago paste, breadfruit, a few mangoes, a half a dozen pineapples, the fermented juice of coconuts added to our pleasure, and I remember that my worthy companions were not expressing themselves with their usual clarity. What do you say we don't go back to the Nautilus this evening? suggested Conseil. What do you say we'd never go back? added Ned Land. Just then, a stone fell in our midst, punctuating the harpooner's suggestion. Questions to consider after reading. Kinsei has wisdom to have three spaces on the boat for spoils. If you were in this situation, how would you divide the spoils? Ned seems to be open to cannibalism. Do you think he would really eat another person? Is Ned right in believing fruit and vegetables alone don't make a meal? Kinsei catches a bird of paradise. How was he able to do that? Where did the stone come from? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.